Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency. I would just like to remind you before we start that uh, the Spectator US edition is now out. We're on to about our fourth edition now. Uh, and you can subscribe either digitally or in print or both by going to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe. And listeners of this podcast can get a special 5% discount if they go to that page and put in the code Americano in capital letters. Please do it. Uh, I'll be humiliated if nobody does. I'm joined today by Michael Tracy, who is a journalist who writes for The Spectator, uh, who's currently in New Hampshire ahead of the Democratic primary. Uh, but we're going to start by talking about impeachment because there's uh, significant impeachment news today. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, the leader of the Democrats in the House, Speaker of the Democrats in the House, is, uh, has just said that Republicans should be ashamed of themselves uh, for not allowing witnesses. Uh, he said this will go down as a great cover-up um, in history. He was full of a lot of hot air, I would say. Uh, and I think judging by your latest piece for Spectator, Michael, you would agree that um, this impeachment has been something of a joke. I would agree. And I don't know that I would call it a joke because it's not particularly funny, <laughs> given some of the incredibly ominous long-term implications that I've discerned stemming from this impeachment process. Although I do have to say, I think I might be second to no one in expressing my contempt for many aspects of the, this impeachment process. But I'm not sure that I buy the Republican argument that bringing forth witnesses would be such an affront to justice. Um, I, the, the arguments that they make on that score don't seem particularly sound to me. And I'm saying that as somebody who is a pretty stalwart opponent of much of this impeachment process, but that's sort of a side issue that will get lost in the fray as the culmination of this impeachment effort results in what everybody always knew it was going to result in, which is the acquittal of Trump. So if it takes another day or week or something, it's not going to change the fundamental, I think, uh, destructiveness that has been wrought by this impeachment process in, again, many different respects. I think, I mean, just on the witnesses for a second, I mean, it seems to me uh, that, in fact, the Republicans are helping the Democrats by... Um, uh, not allowing witnesses, because now the Democrats can claim, well, it was, you know, hushed up in the Senate, uh, and now it's down to the people, which is obviously the line they're going to want to spin from now on, that it, that, that there is this sort of cover-up aspect, and that actually the Republicans scored a bit of an own goal by not allowing the witnesses, because it it, it seems to me, and judging from the polls anyway, that um, impeachment is helping Trump in many respects. Uh, the Democrats have made themselves look um, foolish, and um, obsessed with bringing down Trump by non-democratic means. Right. So even if your objective is purely to exonerate Trump, I don't see what harm it would be to compile a full documentary, evidence, an evidentiary record in the process of doing so. Because like, as you mentioned, Trump's approval rating has gone up over the course of this impeachment ordeal. Democrats every day seem to make themselves look foolish in one way or another, which is totally to be expected when you delegated the authority to preside over the impeachment case on the Democratic side to Adam Schiff, who is one of the worst offenders, if not the absolute worst, in terms of his 
utterly wrong and fallacious statements over the course of the Russiagate slash Robert Mueller saga. And not unexpectedly, he's carried forth that same general wrongheadedness into this current impeachment saga, which I've always viewed as somewhat of an offshoot of the preceding Russia narrative, because even in a literal sense, they constantly invoke Robert Mueller over the course of this trial. They talk about how Trump welcomed, in their words, foreign interference in 2016. And what makes this impeachment such an urgent matter is that we have to prevent him from doing the same in 2020. So all of those arguments on the Democratic side seem to be not particularly resonating with the public. And so even, again, if you're operating from a purely strategic political standpoint, I don't see why the the Republicans are in such a rush to get this over with. John Bolton coming and testifying before the Senate, I don't think would really bolster the Democrats' case all that much. If anything, it would just allow for the complete record to accrue, and then Trump can be exonerated on that basis. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I join you in being somewhat puzzled. Well, I mean, let me put it to you that the Democratic Party are having something of a sort of collective nervous breakdown. Um, and the very fact that, uh, you know, Adam Schiff has, has become the face of uh, impeachment, the very fact that they keep saying, uh, if Trump gets away with it this time, he'll only cheat again, implying that he cheated in 2016 to win the election um, by getting help from Putin. Um, They seem to be clinging to these ideas that only they and perhaps uh, a few people in the media really believe, um, uh, sort of in spite of obvious reasons not to. So it seems to me perhaps they are worried about uh, the rise of uh, Bernie Sanders um, the fact that the sort of uh, what what happened to the Republican Party in 2016 might be about to happen to the Democratic Party in 2020. It might be destroyed by a, a kind of insurgent movement, um, and that they're clinging to um, their power in Washington in a, in a sort of slightly crazed way. You know, it's plausible, um, but I would be hesitant to ascribe some kind of unified motivation to them, other than. They wanted to impose punishment on Trump for the Russiagate slash Robert Mueller situation, which began in earnest well before Trump even took office. And this can almost be viewed as its culmination, Uh, because the reason why I've always viewed the Ukraine impeachment as part of the same narrative continuum as the Russia matter, which we thought, I mean, some thought, I never thought it would be resolved by the conclusion of the Mueller investigation, but some people insisted that it would, but of course it wasn't, because it was too firmly ingrained in the psyches of the Democratic Party and their allies in the media to ever really just give it up. Mm. Um, But they, so in making Mueller a factor in this impeachment episode, they are saying, we're basically seeking vengeance on behalf of Mueller, even though we couldn't do it based on what was presented in his report or in his testimony, both of which were utter duds. Um, So I think that's really what's driven this impeachment. You've had calls even before the Ukraine phone call was divulged in September for impeachment purely on the basis of the Mueller report. So that sort of set the foundation where impeachment became perceived as an actionable means of opposing Trump, and then the Ukraine phone call just gave it the added burst that it needed to actually come to fruition. In terms of Bernie, I have have seen reporting 
that suggests the Democrats want to draw this out a few days further by adding additional motions and trying to extend debate, which would mean that it would go into the Iowa caucus and on uh, into the State of the Union potentially on Tuesday, which is incredible to just ponder the significance of because the way I put it is it would almost seem as wildly far-fetched U.S. politics fan fiction to conjure up a scenario whereby the leading Democratic candidates for president, or at least several of them, have to remain holed up in the Senate chamber days before the Iowa caucus, and potentially even on the date of the Iowa caucus itself, (laughs) posing questions to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and uh, they can't physically go to Iowa to campaign. Now, is it a concerted effort to constrain Bernie? I don't know. And even if that was the thinking behind somebody like Chuck Schumer now wanting to potentially extend this, I don't know that it would be particularly effective because it's not as though Joe Biden, who is not constrained by this impeachment trial and can be in Iowa all he wants, really, you know, bowls over voters with his enthusiasm and sharp insights when he's physically campaigning amongst them. So I don't know that that's that's much of a downside to Bernie potentially, but it will be an amazing spectacle if he and others have to stay in D.C. on the date of the caucus. Well, yes, and of course, uh, Biden himself does not emerge uh, in covered in glory from the whole impeachment proceedings. But also, there's this could be, in terms of media narratives and so on, this could be a really uh, uplifting time for the Democrats. You know, they can they could get, regardless of whether they're depressed about Bernie Sanders or not, this is, this is where their Democratic primary begins. This is where they can really sort of start to lay out uh, as a party how they're going to defeat Trump. Um, and yet they are sort of trying to manage this very confused, muddling and quite often very boring um, story about Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think that once the trial concludes, whenever that ultimately happens, whether it's tonight, which is possible, or in a couple of days or whenever, I don't think that's going to be the end of it. I think there's going to be a continued push to use what was ascertained over the course of this impeachment trial and, again, the preceding Russiagate narrative to kind of mold into a narrative that would be uh, to be wielded against Trump for the purposes of his re-election campaign. So presumably they wouldn't try to impeach him again, but they're going to use the information and the allegations derived from this impeachment episode to sort of animate or color the argument that they put forward over the course of the campaign. Um, but you're right that it's muddled. Um, I don't – most of the time candidates don't get questions about impeachment on the campaign trail. It does come up occasionally. Um, like you mentioned, I'm in New Hampshire, so I've been following Tulsi Gabbard, whose campaign is focused here rather than in Iowa. And she does get occasional questions about it because she took a unique stance on the matter, mm. as I mentioned in the Spectator piece today, by voting present on the impeachment articles when they came for a vote in December, not because she wanted to excuse or um, or absolve Trump of all wrongdoing, but rather that she felt that she also needed to repudiate the process by which Trump was being impeached, which is fatally flawed in numerous, numerous respects and relies on really unhinged new Cold War maxims that almost ensure in a way that the U.S. remains in a constant state of war with Russia by sort of insinuating that Trump committed treason on behalf of Putin, Putin by withholding the tempor- temporarily withholding the future dispersals of military aid. Remember, he didn't actually withhold the aid. Mm. That gets totally lost in this 
debate. Yes. Because there's a lag time of a year before the aid would have been dispersed anyway. He did withhold a future dispersal of military aid that actually didn't affect in any practical terms how that aid would get dispersed, as confirmed by two of the Democrats' own impeachment witnesses during the public testimony, George Kent and William Taylor. So, I mean, that's what, I mean, that got, got totally obscured. Uh, you know, but she voted for it because she had both substantive objections to the impeachment articles and also strategic objections because she said, as we discussed briefly on this podcast, that a failed and almost uh, impeachment driven almost entirely by partisan zeal would inevitably result in Trump's base being hardened. So you have people who might be disillusioned with Trump in a variety of ways. Maybe they don't feel that he delivered on his campaign promises or they're just tired of the constant drama. Now becoming resentful of the Democrats at least appearing to be seeking to overturn the 2016 election result. Obviously, they're not literally seeking to overturn it because the 2016 election will always have happened. Mm. But it does give that impression almost similar to the Brexit situation in the UK, right, where the Labour Party ran on a manifesto, basically guaranteeing another referendum, and some of their most long-standing strongholds in the North and the Midlands ended up voting for the Conservative Party for the first time ever, just because they were resentful that they, the democratic mandate was being ignored. So I think there is sort of a transatlantic parallel that can be drawn there. And, yes, well, the, um, clock, the clock is ticking here until 11 o'clock is when right. uh, <laughs> leave the European Union. But I, I, you mentioned three in your piece, you mentioned three, I, this is a very interesting thing that I've never seen pointed out before, three things that Trump's done that you consider far more impeachment worthy uh, than this. Um, one of them is uh, assassinating Soleimani uh, in Iran. Uh, two of them, uh, sorry, the second one is to that he twice illegally bombed Syria uh, or Syrian government forces. Uh, and the third is a failed attempt to overthrow the government of Venezuela. Now, we could probably argue about whether those are impeachment worthy offences, but I would agree with you that uh, they are certainly more grave, uh, more serious and more substantial than... Um, this p- telephone call with the uh, new president of Ukraine. Right. So the point in citing those examples was not necessarily to say that Trump deserves to be impeached over any one of them, but yeah. just to point out the absurdity that those three grave examples of what I would consider to be a form of presidential wrongdoing would never even be entertained as warranting impeachment, which shows you something about the priorities of the political class in the form of both the elected officials in the media, who it would never even occur to them to impeach on those grounds, right? But they did devote an enormous amount of energy to impeaching Trump for temporarily withholding future dispersals of military aid to Ukraine and mentioning Joe Biden on a phone call. Yes. So when you put it in those terms, it kind of shows the the, the shallowness of the approach and provides, I think, an, an illustrative contrast. Now, the for the, on the on the Soleimani uh, assassination, for example, I mean, you could you could argue about the merits of it. Maybe somebody's some people are for it, some people are against it. I would be I'm against it on the grounds of it entered the U.S. into a, effectively a state of war with Iran for the first time since 1979 uh, by initiating state to state military hostilities. Remember, Iran retaliated by firing missiles at a U.S. base in Iraq and. The uh, Trump administration even absurdly, preposterously cited the 2002 authorization for use of military force against Iraq, which was voted on by including Joe Biden to authorize 
the top wing of Saddam Hussein. That's what they're citing to justify acts of war against the Iranian government. So that on its face is just nonsensical and would seem to me to be to rise to the level two of impeachability. But the impeachability standard that the Democrats have erected ignores that conduct. And I think especially when you put this impeachment in the context of, of U.S. history, it shows how inane and warped the priorities of, again, our political class fundamentally is. And it's especially pertinent because this is the first impeachment ever, there have only been three, the first impeachment ever that bore directly on U.S. foreign policy. That is from U.S. foreign policy is the domain from which this impeachment stemmed. Yes. And so what the Congress essentially, or the House of Representatives anyway, effectively communicated communicated by making this what they chose to impeach Trump on is that the only U.S. foreign policy action that the, the House of Representatives has ever regarded as warranting impeachment was, again, this relatively trivial episode of Trump mentioning Biden on a phone call and temporarily withholding some military aid. Yeah. And when you look at the invasions that the U.S. has committed, the coup attempts, the sanctions, the assassinations, go down the record, open any history book, for this now to be what has been regarded as rising to the level of impeachable conduct is a total joke. I said it wasn't a joke before because it's not funny, but it's a joke in a more dark and sinister sense. Yes. And this is something that Tulsi Gabbard, as you've touched on, has been quite clear about, actually, is that um, the, the the fact that the, the sort of hawkish elements within uh, the administrative state, if we want to call it that, let's not use the word deep state, uh, they are fixated with Putin and that Russia gate and now Ukraine gate, these two issues have become sort of entwined. And uh, the reason that there was sort of the motivation to impeach Trump, not just from the Democrat side, but within uh, sort of the structures of power in Washington, um, was that uh, it meant that you could bake in this assumption uh, that Ukraine needs military aid against Russia and that America's strategic priorities have got to be combating Russia in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it, it embeds, so that I would call sort of a new Cold War style assumption. And in the impeachment articles being ratified, those assumptions now get embedded into the very fabric of American governance because impeachment creates a precedent um, that is going to inform how U.S. government officials operate for Presumably the rest of U.S. history is sort of melodramatic, as that may sound. Yes, yeah, so, so so from now on, if you do not arm uh, a potential enemy of Vladimir Putin in uh, Eastern Europe, you are committing an impeachable offence. Right. And, you know, I, I published a piece of Real Clear Politics earlier this week that went through this uh, House Judiciary Com- Committee report that was put out prior to the impeachment vote last month, which very few in the media or the political class seem to have bothered to read. But I read it because I'm sort of, uh, I crave, uh, <laughs> I crave self-harm in that way. <laughs> um, You're a masochist. And, and, and one thing that is made clear in this impeachment report, which essentially defines the terms of what was included in the impeachment articles, was that in alleging, as the first article of impeachment does, that Trump, quote, betrayed the nation. What they define betrayed the nation in, as in this impeachment uh, Judiciary Committee report is effectively committing treason. And in order to commit treason, you have to do something that aids and abets an enemy of the U.S. with which it is at war. And the ed- enemy, quote unquote, that was allegedly aided and abetted by Trump was Russia. So they're saying that 
that, that, that by way of these impeachment articles, we now have ingrained, again, into the fabric of American governance, this idea that the U.S. is in perpetual war with Russia. And that contradicts flatly some of Tulsi Gabbard's core campaign themes. While Adam Schiff was ranting on the floor of the Senate this week in, in his impeachment trial, Tulsi Gabbard was talking about the uh, new Cold War and its destructive ramifications. She was talking about how the doomsday clock was moved closer to midnight just last week, in part because of the deterioration of U.S. and Russia relations, which gets totally ignored because most in the political class want to depict Trump as a puppet of Russia. But in reality, what he's doing is ratcheting up tensions with Russia by, like I mentioned in the article, attempting to overthrow Russia's chief ally in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela, by tearing up the INF Treaty, which was brokered by Gorbachev and Reagan in the 80s to... Uh, to uh, tamp down on the respective countries' nuclear stockpiles by any number of aggressive measures that Trump and his allies in the administration, such as Bolton, who is now an enemy of Trump, but he was fully on board with many of these antagonistic measures. So the, 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 the multifold ways in which this impeachment has warped the perceptions of Americans about the state of affairs in our government is just incredible. And so that's part of the reason why I sat down this morning and wrote a pretty angry rant against against it for the spectator. Well, it it, it was angry, and and you and you say in the in the piece that you think it's it's uh, permanently damaged the fabric of American government. I think that it occurred to me reading your piece that it's quite uh, striking that actually impeachment hasn't become inflated before. How it hasn't become cheapened before. Um, given that it is this device that's available to Congress, um, and uh, it's perhaps testament to to the sort of civic com- commitment of Americans to the idea of democracy, that it hasn't already become cheapened in the way you suggest it has now. Well, I mean, the Clinton impeachment certainly cheapened the whole that that device as a mechanism for imposing accountability. You know, Alan Dershowitz got mocked for his performance on behalf of the Trump defense team over the course of this trial. But it is true that he also stridently opposed the Clinton impeachment on similar grounds because he was saying that Clinton's offenses, even you know, as, as inappropriate as they may have been or even potentially illegal, didn't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and he applied a similar logic here. And, you know, I think that's roughly correct um, because... Impeachment is a necessary remedial action that is made available by the Constitution in the case of a, of a particularly egregious misconduct. I would have thought that the Iraq War would have warranted impeachment. Actually, Dennis Kucinich, who is the former two-time presidential candidate for the Democrats and the former uh, congressman from Ohio, who ran on a staunchly anti-war platform and has endorsed Tulsi Gabbard this time, uh, he in- attempted to introduce impeachment articles in 2007. Um, on account of the uh, what he regarded to be high crimes and misdemeanors committed by the Bush administration vis-a-vis Iraq. But Nancy Pelosi, when she entered office, dismissed impeachment on those grounds against Bush as a, quote, waste of time. Mm. So again, it gets back to what does our political class and our media class prioritize in terms of the most egregious offenses that a president might commit? And taken as a whole, this impeachment exercise now just indicates that their priorities are completely blinkered, driven and animated by partisan zeal, and not actually about imposing genuine accountability for anything. It's just about sort of 
giving themselves this emotional gratification that they quote unquote did something, even though the, the something that they're doing doesn't curtail some of the worst abuses that our top government officials commit. Well, and lastly, just quickly, let's move away from uh, impeachment and talk about New Hampshire, where you are now, um, or the Democratic primary. We've got the Iowa caucuses on Monday um, and then uh, New Hampshire after that. What's your impression on the ground there? Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire quite convincingly in 2016. The polls suggest he will win it again. uh, And the polls look like at the moment they look like he's going to win in Iowa. What's the feeling on the ground there? He did win convincingly last time, but remember, there are only two people effectively running in New Hampshire last time for the Democrats, so you have a much different dynamic. This time around, I think there is a decent chance that he sweeps both states, and I actually wrote about this for the Spectator almost over a year ago, in November of 2018, wondering why Bernie Sanders was not being presented by the media as the obvious frontrunner in the race. This was before it was certain that Joe Biden was running, but the, the, the logic that I put forth in that piece over a year ago still stands. Bernie Sanders in 2016 developed a nationwide infrastructure, um, having garnered uh, 43% of the vote, if I'm remembering that exact figure correctly, uh, nationwide. And that's an enormous advantage going in to another election. I mean, Bernie Sanders was never seen as having a huge advantage from that infrastructure being already in place over the course of five years now. And uh, that's because the media always had a bizarre fascination with trying to elevate other candidates. And, um, uh, and, and on top of that, runners-up in presidential primaries have a pretty good track record in U.S. politics. Mitt Romney was a runner-up when he won the Republican nomination in uh, 2012. Uh, Hillary Clinton was a runner-up in 2016 when she had run against Obama in 08. McCain was a runner-up in 2008 when he had run and was defeated by Bush in 2000. And you can name many other examples. Uh, But for some reason, Bernie being a self-described socialist and an independent um, misled many in the commentariat from recognizing his fundamental strength in this race. Now, I do think there is a lot of variability in Iowa in particular, given the idiosyncrasies of a caucus, and um, that Bernie may be leading, but some of it's going to depend on who the second choice of certain candidates are. And, uh, you know, Biden has been more resilient than people thought. But I wrote a piece again for The Spectator. I mean, I guess I'm tooting my own horn here, but I wrote a piece for The Spectator just after Biden announced his campaign in uh, April, uh, chastising much of the media for thinking that he was just going to implode. Uh, when, again, the vice presidency is a hugely powerful uh, platform from which to wage a primary campaign, especially given that the president that he served under, Barack Obama, is extremely popular amongst Democrats. So um, I think Bernie still, I, I mean, I, I would not, not be shocked if Bernie wins, but there are some polls now that have, you know, potentially three or four candidates bunched up into the top tier in Iowa. So, uh, so there are certain people who make their decisions uh, on the day of the caucus here in New Hampshire, I, I, I encounter a uh, almost a shocking number of people who are undecided um, uh, because they don't follow politics that closely, you know, and they and then they make their decision sort of on the fly. And I, I can still remember being in New Hampshire in uh, 2008 
when all the polls showed that Barack Obama was going to win the New Hampshire primary after he had won the Iowa caucus, and Hillary Clinton ended up winning that primary by a squeaker. So I, I don't think that people should underappreciate the extent to which there is a still a fair amount of uncertainty, which is sort of inherent to uh, primaries in the final days. Live free or die, as the uh, official motto of New Hampshire goes. Uh, right, Michael... and actually, and that, and that, and that, that and on the, and I've been following Tulsi Gabbard, as I mentioned. That's why I'm in, in uh, New Hampshire as opposed to Iowa. And you mentioned the live free or die motto. Tulsi Gabbard has she's been produce, her campaign is producing shirts that show that say "Live free, vote Tulsi." And that's because <laughs> there are a lot of libertarians and independents in New Hampshire who like Tulsi Gabbard. Not because they necessarily agree with everything that she prescribes on a domestic policy basis, so they're not going to be philosophically on board with, for example, a form of single-payer health care, which she advocates, but they do like what she emphasizes. And what she emphasizes is fundamentally rethinking U.S. foreign policy, whether that, that relates to our, our war-making abroad or even something like impeachment, which has a foreign policy dimension. And so that's why I think she has the potential to potentially overperform in uh, in New Hampshire, there have been polls recently that show her within the margin of error for second place. Actually, now that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I th- do think that she might surprise people, which is sort of why I decided to to focus my attention on her. Well, if she does do anything uh, close to that, well, uh, we should certainly talk again. Michael, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano, and I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback positive comments or constructive comments only please to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite 